Good morning, Deep Run family. This morning we will be reading from the English Standard Version. Um, if you're here with us and you need a Bible to um, borrow or to keep, you can find them on the back table. If you're joining us online and you need one, just uh, feel free to reach out to one of us and we'll find a way to get one to you. We'll be reading from Psalm 56. Be gracious to me, O God, for man tramples on me. All day long an attacker oppresses me. My enemies trample on me all day long, for they attack me proudly. When I am afraid, I put my trust in you. In God, whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? All day long they injure my cause. All their thoughts are against me for evil. They stir up strife. They lurk. They watch my steps as they have waited for my life. For their crime will they escape? In wrath, cast down the peoples, O God. You have kept count of my tossings. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. This I know, that God is for me. In God, whose word I praise, in the Lord, whose word I praise, in God I trust. I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? I must perform my vows to you, O God. I will render thank offerings to you. For you have delivered my soul from death, yes, my feet from falling, that I may walk before God in the light of life. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Would somebody be willing to bring the remote up here? Thank you. I just realized I forgot the clicker for my slides. Thank you. There should be a USB receiver. Thank you, Katie. Thank you so much. Just make sure we got it. Yes. Thank you. John Calvin said that the Psalms are an anatomy for all parts of the soul. If you have experienced any emotion in any situation, it is somehow represented in the Psalms. I actually think the Psalms are like Galadriel's file of light that she gives to Frodo for his dangerous journey, right? And she, she says to him, this, this is gonna be a light to you in dark places when all other lights go out. And I think the Psalms are that for the believer. If you visit people in hospitals, what you notice in hospitals are uh, small versions of the Bible. They're the New Testament and the Psalms. When people are suffering, they usually turn to the Psalms more quickly than anything else in the Bible. So every summer, we, we pick up where we left off a year ago in the Psalms. The Psalms help us to slow down, and they help us to learn how to meditate on God's truth. Meditation is a lost Christian spiritual discipline, and we aim to regain it every summer, psalm by psalm. And we learn not only how to meditate, but we learn how to cultivate lives of prayer as we read the Psalms. And Psalm 56 opens with these words sung by David. Be gracious to me, O God, for man tramples on me all day long, an attacker oppresses me. 
The 56th Psalms heading, and actually that the, the, the small printed headings are very ancient. Maybe not original, but they are ancient editions as, as the ancient Hebrews compiled these Psalms for posterity. So when you read those, the, the, by the way, the big bold print headings, that's new, that's from us. Uh, but the small print headings, uh, you know, uh, if it says, you know, this, you know, this is based on a theme, uh, those are ancient. So they give us insight into the circumstance uh, around that psalm. When you read the heading of Psalm 56, it seems like a scenario that could very well be 1 Samuel chapter 21, where David was running from King Saul. He was running for his life, and he was entering, uh, he's trying to hide among the land of the Philistines. Right? He, he's in Philistine territory. He had just parted from his dear friend Jonathan, King Saul's son, was David's best friend. They parted with tears because they would never show other again. Uh, David moved on to another place where people harbored him. Uh, priests harbored David, and then Saul killed those priests because they had sheltered David. So that's the situation David is in. And his psalm here, it, it displays two emotional poles, two extremes of emotion. Have you noticed them? He, he, he exhibits despair and he exhibits hope all at the same time. On the one hand, he's complaining that his enemies are hard on his heels and they won't relent. On the other hand, he really does believe that ultimately his enemies can't get at him, that ultimately his enemies can't harm him. Have you ever oscillated like that, like a fan between emotions and feelings about the very same situation, maybe even on the very same day or the very same week. You have this very complicated situation or you're suffering or a loved one is suffering or you don't know what to do and you're quite frightened or you're quite angry. One moment, you know, you wake up in the morning and you have a lot of hope and you have strong faith and by the evening or the middle of the night, you are absolutely scared out of your pants. Right, about the same thing at this very same day. You have these extreme poles of emotion about what you're going through. Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever oscillated like that? When we're enduring such tumultuous periods of life, we are, if I can use the expression, storm-tossed. We're storm-tossed on the water. And, and using that imagery, I wanna say today that the anchor for a storm-tossed soul is a love for God and his revealed word. In tumultuous times, an anchor, the anchor for the believer, is yes, a love for God, but also a love for what God says. Because you love God, you love his words, you love his promises, you love his truth. We sang the old hymn earlier this morning, in every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. Edward Moat, 1834. Back at a time where a lot, a lot of traveling was done by sea, and so people really understood how helpless you are on the sea. If you've ever been on a sailboat on the Chesapeake Bay, you understand how helpless you can feel at times, but an anchor for a storm-tossed soul is a love for God and a love for his word. And so today, as we unpack that idea, I wanna talk about your tossings. 
as you, you see David say, uses that word tossings. I wanna to talk about your tossings, and I wanna talk about your anchor, and I wanna talk about your savior in distress. Your tossings, your anchor, and your savior in distress. David mentions the word tossings in verse eight. Um, it basically means wanderings, your, you know, your persecutions, your troubles. Your tossings are many in this life, and they are varied, and they are unpredictable. That's the nature of everything you suffer through, that it happens a lot, it happens in different ways, and it happens when you least expect it. <laughs> you can't control the circumstances. So your tossings are many and varied and unpredictable. And so David shares, he sings a complaint, but he also sings a belief, all in the same psalm. We'll look at his complaint and we'll look at his belief. His complaint expresses his despair at these tossings that he is experiencing. His opposition is constant. Those who are after him are constant. He says in verse two, my enemies trample on me all day long for many attack me proudly. And now that's twice that he's used the phrase all day long. He says it in verses one and two. Right, they're relentless. It's like there's no rest for the weary, is his perspective. He doesn't get a break. His adversaries are after him over and over, all day long. And they're cocky too, because he says they attack him proudly. So these aren't people, who, these aren't marginalized people who were wronged and now they're seeking justice with persistence. Like Jesus says is how we should pray to God, like, like the widow who bangs on the judge's door and he finally gets, he finally hears her case because she's persistent, right? She had a good point. She was, she was grieved. That's not the situation here. They're attacking him proudly. These are people with confidence. These aren't underdogs who have rights. These are privileged people who are arrogant, and the reason they are so confident, the reason they are proud is because of their relationship to the current power structure, right? These are, these are, this is Saul's entourage. This is Saul's army. These are people who are connected to the king, right? And so it is an arrogant pursuit. It's not a fair fight. It's a hunt. This is a cat chasing a mouse, basically. And so he says in verse six, they stir up strife. They lurk. They watch my steps and they have waited for my life. So he sings his complaint to God, but then he sings his belief. His belief expresses his hope in his tossings. He's not only expressing despair, but hope as well. And so if you look at verse three, he says, when I am afraid, I put my trust in you. And later in verse nine, he says, this I know, that God is for me. He's complaining about this relentless pursuit of his arrogant adversaries, and yet he can say, yeah, I am afraid, but when I'm afraid, I'm gonna trust in you, and I know that you are with me. Why did he oscillate like that? For the same reason you and I do. He's a human being. He's a weak, fallen, little human being, and there's nothing like being in the wilderness and going from cave to cave to realize how little you are and helpless you are. 
Now in some settings, uh, I think a leader and a parent, so I think in some settings a leader or a parent or a commander cannot, you cannot show the depths of your soul for the benefit of the people you're trying to lead and help. You cannot show the depths of your anger or despair or fear to your troops, to your students, to your children. They, right, they need you. If you fall apart, what's, <laughs> what's gonna happen to them, right? So, so I, 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 we're not sure, but I, I really wonder if David from cave to cave in the wilderness with his own men, who are, you know, the Bible tells us they were all outcasts, right? He's got this band of outcasts that are following him around the wilderness. And um, knowing David, you read the Psalms and you read about his character, you kind of wonder if David is being strong for his men, like when he was young and he was strong for his sheep. You gotta be strong for the ones you're trying to protect. But the treasure of the Psalms is this. We can show our fear to God we can completely bear the contents of our soul in all transparency and honesty to God. You can't always do that with your coworkers. You can't, you shouldn't, parents, reveal to your children the depths of your fear and anger and frustration because that's not parenting them well. But you should show the depths of your despair and your anger to God. That's the beauty of the Psalms. You gotta keep your act together, you're leading, you're serving, you're waking up, you're paying your taxes, you're going to work, you're putting gas in the car. You gotta live your life while you're scared, while you're afraid, while you're angry, while you are in the depths of grief. And yet, you can pray and sing out to a God who fully knows what's in there anyway, and so that's your outlet. You can completely unload to him. So in expressing, in divulging his true depths of honesty and despair to God, David found hope in his tossings. Why do you think that is? Because of what he says in verse four. In God whose word I praise. He loved the word of God. He cherished the truth and the laws and the promises of his creator. He is able to say, when I am afraid, I put my trust in you, and I know you are for me. He was able to say that because he also says, in God, whose word I praise. So what's this connection between hope like that and the Bible? What's the connection between that type of faith and written scripture? And this is important. If you're a young person or if you are young in your Christian faith, this is really important. Your anchor, we talked about your tossings, your, your, your trials and, and tribulations, but your anchor for faith in all of that has to be the word of God expressed in the Bible. Your anchor for faith must be God's written word expressed in the scriptures. And this is how you see it. In, 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 the psalm has a refrain. It basically has a chorus. And you hear it twice. First in verse four. In God whose word I praise, in God I, tr- I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? But then he repeats that again in verses 10 and with a twist, an important twist. Again, in God whose word I praise, but then look at this insertion. In the Lord 
whose word I praise. And then again, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can, slight variation, what can man do to me? The significance here is that expression, in the Lord whose word I pray. He's not just saying, I trust in God. He's saying, I trust in the Lord, which was the Hebrew name, I am. He's invoking the name. I don't just trust in any old God. He's not just using the generic name for God. He's using God's name for himself that God revealed to Moses, I am. He's invoking the name. You see, David's faith was anchored in relationship. This is not just his creator. This is the creator whose name he knows. And we know from God's name that it captures the character of God, the attributes of God. And so this is really important. Our faith is anchored. True faith is anchored in relationship. And so again, if you're new to Christianity or if you're not there yet, it's important to understand what the Bible says about the Bible. The Bible is not a user's manual that lists information. That way of thinking leads to religious moralism. You're about rules and your ability to keep them, and you hate and despise and look down on everybody else who can't. The Bible is not a mythology that gives sagely inspiration that you can adapt and change as the times, as the needs of the day dictate. That kind of thinking leads to religious liberalism, which turns to be no faith, turns out to be no faith at all. It's more about having faith in the human spirit than in a creator. The Bible is a divinely inspired message. It's not a rule book, it's not a list of mythologies and myths, uh, uh, legends. The Bible is a divinely inspired message. It's a message that imparts the, God of, the, the heart of God to us. And it is only this understanding of the scriptures that produces in people true faith. It's not a manual, it's not a mythology, it is a message from God to humanity that reveals, that divulges in transparency to humanity the contents of his heart. See, the very thing that David is doing, God has already done for David. And that is why David loves not only God, but he loves God's word. Because in God's word, he develops a sense of who God is and develops a relationship with him. He understood that the word of God, even all those laws of Moses, David didn't have the kind of Bible that we had. He didn't even have half of what we have. But what he saw, what he saw in those accounts of his ancestors, what he saw even in the law, in the book of the law, was a message of a God who loved him and would not leave him or forsake him. True faith is built on relationship. In the Lord whose word I praise. So if you're a believer, learn to enjoy God. Listen to this. Learn to enjoy God in the context of cherishing his word, his revealed word. Not what you think he's saying to you. Not what somebody said, hey, I had a vision, I had a dream, and I think you need to marry this person. Hey, sometimes God works providentially through dreams. 
and through the wisdom of a brother or sister. And I'm not saying any of that is discounted, but if we rely too heavily on that, all of a sudden we're not sure what's God's word and what isn't. What we all can agree on is the written word of God as revealed through the prophets throughout history is God's message to humanity. So learn to enjoy God in the context of his revealed word. Psalm 119.97, oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Now, I am, I am respectfully deeply concerned for you if you don't want that, if you don't want a love for God's truth and don't want to meditate on it as a habit of your life. I'm really concerned for you. If you don't like reading, if you have no patience for opening a book and reading the word of God, I am deeply concerned for you. If your mentality is, and I have heard this over the years, uh, just tell me what to do. Tell me what to do. Tell me how often to do it. I'll listen. I'll do it. I'll be faithful. I'll be consistent. I'll give. I'll show up at mass. I'll come to the worship service. Just tell me what to do. I do not want to read. I do not want to open the Bible. That's the problem with religion. That's the problem with religion all over the world throughout history is you're about God, but you're not with him. Now, Christians, and before Christians, the Israelites who followed the great I am have always been people of the book. That is what God gave them. He didn't give them fancy temples and, and, and exciting experiences to to, um, to capture the imagination and the senses and our appetites. He gave us his word, which to the world looks very boring. But he gave the ancient Israelites his word, his promises, his covenant, his laws. And you know, you don't have to be academic. You don't have to be a bookworm. You don't have to be a book person. You don't have to be book smart. You don't have to be intelligent. That's not what opening the Bible is all about. Don't misunderstand me. This is what I mean. You have to be willing to listen. You have to be teachable. You have to be willing to say, I'm going to open the word of God and see what it says to me and how it speaks into my life. I'm willing to let other people speak to me from the wisdom they have gained from the Bible. A follower of Jesus is a person of the book. Whether they are book smart or whether they're dyslexic, it doesn't matter. Do you have a willingness to open God's word, to share it with one another and say, thus saith the Lord, and I will listen to it? That's what I'm talking about, a willingness to learn. As Jesus said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. What did the Westminster Shorter Catechism say in the very first question? What is the chief end of man? Do you remember? Do any of you know? Okay, yeah. That wasn't quite sung like a hymn, but it, it, it worked, yeah. The chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. So learn to enjoy him in the haven of his truth. Learn to enjoy him in, in, in the vine, in the productive, flourishing vine that is his word and his wisdom. 
and his faithful eternal promises. Learn to enjoy God upon the rock that is his word. How can you enjoy, how can you enjoy a person when you don't listen to what they say? Of course you can't. It's one thing to say you love somebody, it's another thing to actually listen to them and learn to appreciate what comes out of their mouth and learn to listen to what they care about and what they're afraid of and what they hate and what they love. Learn to enjoy God in the context of his revealed word. When all around my soul gives way, he then is all my hope and stay. In the distress of your tossings, ask yourself, are you overlooking his word? And are you looking to all, like, pacifiers, all sorts of pacifiers and distractions, coping mechanisms. Sometimes a coping mechanism can be as simple and innocent as a hobby. Sometimes it can be as as tricky and complex and life-altering and and dangerous as, as a prescribed substance. Sometimes it can be another person. But are you looking to your coping mechanisms and overlooking the word of God in your tossings? By failing to remember God's truth, because that's what he kept saying to the Israelites, remember, remember. By failing to remember his truth and thereby recharging your hope like David recharges his hope in this psalm, you end up recharging the wrong thing. When, when we go to our coping mechanisms and fully rely on that, and of course, many of the things we rely on too heavily, we actually need. They're a part of God's good creation, and we should enjoy them and use them wisely. The problem is when we overlook his word and lean on our coping mechanisms. And when we do that, we recharge the wrong thing. When you lean into your coping, your coping mechanisms in your tossings and distress, you end up recharging your anxiety. You end up recharging your anger. You recharge your unbelief, and that's what you give renewed strength to. That's what you give emboldened energy to when you really should be trying to contain it, you see. What helps you contain it? In God whose word I praise. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. That's how we contain our coping mechanisms, and our anger, and our fear, and our unbelief. Outside of God's promises, there is no lasting hope. There's only temporary distractions. Only temporary distractions. And a temporary distraction can't be an anchor. It's too unstable. And if your tossings are varied and many and unpredictable, you need something that's a solid and firm and steady anchor. Not, not a temporary distraction. The anchor that you need is a savior who knows your tossings intimately and speaks truth into them. That's your anchor. A God who not only sees your tossings, but has been tossed around himself and knows them intimately and knows you intimately. Look at verse eight. I think it's the beautiful heart of this psalm. He starts with, you have kept count of my tossings. Now, I've said earlier, all of our English Bible translations use a different word for this 
this Hebrew word where it says tossings in the English standard version. It basically means wanderings. The Hebrew word there, when you see it throughout the Old Testament, it typically means wanderings. Okay, so for instance, one of the very first, maybe the first, I, I have to check, very early in the Bible, in Genesis chapter four, Cain kills his brother Abel, and God casts him out, and Cain is forced to live in the land of, does anyone remember? Yes, the land of Nod, or Node, yes. Cain is forced to live in the land of Node, and you know what, it's the same word. Cain is forced to live in the land of wandering. That's how Genesis describes the account. And, and that, is a, that, is a, that is right on target for what sin creates, what the consequences of our sin and the sin of other people are. It, sin makes us wanderers. That, that, when we, when, like, like Cain's parents, you know, when you say, forget your word, God, I've got somebody else's word to listen to, the result is wandering. We are cosmic wanderers. That's the result of our sin. That is the result of other people's sin, constant tossing. My sins are tossing me about. The sins of other people are tossing you about. We live in the land of wandering, spiritually seeking, because we have chosen not to listen to God's precious promises. But, but, and here's the hope that David trusted in. We are never tossed about so much. We are never wandering so far outside of God's knowledge of us. God protected, read about it in Genesis 4, God protected Cain from human retribution. Although he lived in the land of wandering, God still had his eye on Cain. And although you live in the land of your tossing, God still has his eye on you. David went on to say, you have kept count of my tossings. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? I think that's beautiful. David was certain that God kept a record of the wrongs that had been done against him. These people are hunting him down, and David is convinced that God was keeping a record in his book on everything that was happening and that God would someday provide justice. And that was David's hope. But I think even more precious than these things being recorded in God's book is God catching his tears in his bottle. I mean, like, what kind of a God talks like this? I mean, the creator of the universe taking your tears and putting them in a bottle? Who puts things in bottles? Little girls. Little girls go to the beach. My daughter did it this week. They go to the beach and they pick up, they pick up beach glass and they put them in a jar or they collect seashells and they put them in a jar and they put them on their shelf and what does that mean? It was a happy moment and they try and capture that happy moment. They look at my seashells. Look at all this glass I've, and, and they just put it there and then what happens when they get older? They start writing in diaries. <laughs> and just like the jar of beach glass and seashells, the diary becomes this Locked down, right, on pain of death. 
lockdown record of their happiest moments and their darkest moments. A diary is precious to her because it contains a memory of her highs and her lows. And so God, David is saying, Lord, I believe you have a diary of my sufferings, and it is precious to you. And David is saying, Lord, I believe you have a jar of every single one of my tears. I mean, what kind of a God has a jar of your deepest despair and prizes it? This God, David's God, because he prizes you. Your tears, David is saying, are precious to him because you are precious to him. How do we know that's true? Not just for David, but for, but for us. How do we know that it just doesn't stay there on the pages of Psalm 56 and doesn't jump by the grace of the Holy Spirit into our lives right now? How do we know it's true for us? Well, here is just one example. John chapter one records the moment when uh, some of the disciples, some of the men who would become disciples started coming to Jesus. And Philip finds Jesus and then goes and tells Daniel, Nathaniel, hey, I think I found the Messiah. And Nathaniel says, come on, the guy from Nazareth, away. And he goes, no, come on, come and see. And so uh, John's gospel tells us, Jesus saw Nathaniel coming toward him and said to him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. That's like a big ancient compliment. Behold, an honest guy, a good Israelite. Right? And Nathanael said to him, how do you know me? And Jesus answered him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. <laughs> and, and, and we're not told in what state Nathaniel was when Jesus saw him. However, Jesus comprehended where Philip, uh, Nathaniel was and what he was doing. We don't know. We don't know how Nathaniel felt, whether he was having a terrible day or a good day. We don't really know what that statement meant to Nathaniel, but whatever it meant, and that's between Jesus and Nathaniel, just like your tears are between you and Jesus, right? Just like that diary God has is between him and you. We don't know what that meant to Nathaniel. I saw you under the fig tree, but it changed Nathaniel's life. Let it change your life. That's your anchor in your tossings. Let Jesus' knowledge of you, whatever that means to you, let it change your life. Jesus' proof that your tears, that your tossings are precious because you are precious. And we discover that because you were so precious, the eternal Son of God became a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. A man of sorrows acquainted with grief. And so what we know is that he holds your tears in a bottle, um, but he knows those tears. He's cried them also, you see. And so he has the ability to look at you in your tossings and say, I know, I've been there. I've gone through it. Let me share in your suffering. It's only then that you say, oh, this is more than a manual. This is too good to be a myth. This is what all the myths point to. A God who keeps my tears in his bottle 
who records my sufferings in his book. And what did we sing earlier? His oath, his covenant, his blood. Support me in the whelming flood. You see, the anchor for a storm-tossed soul is a love for God and a love for his revealed word. So learn to enjoy God in the context, in the haven, in the rock that is cherishing his revealed words. And let's keep meditating on the Psalms and cultivating a life of prayer throughout the summer. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus, we are amazed that you know each of us, that if, if our hairs, the hairs on our head are numbered, if we are more precious than sparrows, if we are more precious to you than the lilies of the field, then even our sufferings are precious to you. Even our sufferings are known to you. You care about us so deeply that you will not forget what we have endured. Oh, thank you. May we not forget, Lord Jesus, what you have endured for us. Oh, we praise you that your cross is evidence that you have become acquainted with our sorrows and our grief. And we praise you that your empty tomb, the proof of your resurrection, is proof that not even death can destroy us. Thank you. May we sing songs of despair and of hope like our ancestor David did. In Christ Jesus' name, the son of David. Amen.